0: During the season of Lent, we've been in a series where we've been looking at how one word can change your life. We've been learning how to say words like no, and yes, and remember, and sorry, and words like help and commit. But today we arrive at Easter Sunday, the most celebrated day in the Christian faith, so it brings up the question, what's the one word that could best express our response to the Easter message, and to the life of Jesus. We're going to get to that word in just a moment, but let's start with this. This is from a Yale historian named Jaroslav Pelikan. This is what he wrote. Regardless of what anyone may personally think about or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of supermagnet, To pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left. And it struck me as I was reading a portion of his book that we often think about Jesus as part of my little life or our little church here in Lakeland, Florida. We don't often stand back and just recognize the scope, the sheer awe-inspiring enormity of his impact on the whole world. Walt Disney's daughter wrote a biography about her dad a few years ago. And she talked about how when she was a little girl, she did not know who her dad was, what he did, until she was like six or seven years old. And she was at school and there were kids in her school who said, you know, Mickey Mouse and the Magic Kingdom and all that stuff, that's your dad. And she went home and said to him, dad, how come you never told me you're Walt Disney? It's kind of like that with Jesus. You see, it would be hard to choose a less likely candidate to change the world than Jesus Christ. He was not a political figure. He had no connections with Herod or the Sanhedrin or Rome. He led no military action. He never wrote a book. He never traveled. His followers were relatively uneducated and ridiculously unimportant people. The New Testament itself records them as being called unschooled, ordinary people. But it was noted about them that they had been with Jesus. And now 2,000 years later, it is virtually impossible to imagine our world apart from his imprint on it. In fact, whether we realize it or not, just about every facet of life and culture in today's world reminds us of this itinerant rabbi named Jesus. You can remain seated as we continue to worship.
1: What may look like a hopeless project to some has the potential of becoming a thing of beauty in the builder's hands. Nowhere is this more true than in my own life as in the lives of many I've known throughout the years. When we invite the carpenter from Nazareth into the broken and unfinished rooms of our souls, he proves to be in the restoration business again and again. As I go about my work each day, I do so with the confidence that He, who began a good work in me, will certainly complete it. Christ has inspired me on almost every job site in some significant way. I have been inspired to say no to some tasks, roofing, flooring, and temptation to take shortcuts when I'm tired and want to get out of town. I have been inspired by Christ to say yes to areas that challenge me to do better workmanship. I have been inspired to ask for help. My wife, Gloria, daughter Lisa, and I were at the Strawberry Festival eating jalapeno cheese sticks when a man came and sat at our table. When he got up and left, Lisa pointed out the inscription on his shirt, and it simply read, Y'all need Jesus. My heart was immediately moved in that moment. I do need Jesus. We all do. Let's allow Jesus to continue to inspire our every moment.
2: My name is Carla and I'm a registered nurse and lactation consultant. I didn't go into nursing because it was a calling. I went into nursing because in two years I could be making good money and have a flexible schedule. But as has his practice, Jesus showed up. He taught me how to love, show love and compassion to everyone I care for in my line of work. He showed me miracles that science can't explain. He's with us as we reconcile that science and faith. He showed me that everyone is worthy and everyone has value. The Gospel of Matthew talks about how Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion for them. I feel that compassion when I see a patient who is struggling or hurting. I see nursing as my commandment to love, even more so than to heal. Jesus loves all of us. He's with all of us. He's with the couple who have been trying for 10 years to have a baby. He's with the pregnant 14-year-old, and he's with the drug-addicted mother. And he's also with us, the caregivers, the ones whose jobs are rooted in service. My objective, both as a healer and as a follower of Christ, is to bring healing, comfort, and rest to the mind and body, to nourish and protect those who are at their most vulnerable, to love like Jesus
3: loved. The Bible tells us, Jehovah Jireh, Jesus is my provider. My name is Alan. I am a pastor, a shepherd, a teacher, and have the heart of an evangelist to tell people about Jesus Christ. When I look down over a congregation when I preach, I see baby birds in a nest with their mouths wide open, waiting to be fed by the parent. God revealed to me that that was the way He saw people hungry for the Word of God and waiting to be fed. Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. But I knew that was only part of the command to teach the word of God. The second part of the vision was to feed people and feed their stomachs. People cannot hear you when they are hungry. When Jesus preached and taught the word of God, and then to the 5,000, he then told the apostles, you give them something to eat. It was then that I saw the bigger picture. Matthew tells us, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Whatever you did for one of the least of my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Our food pantry feeds thousands of hungry people. They are single parents. They are the elderly. They are grandparents raising their grandchildren, many on fixed incomes, not having enough money at the end of the month to buy food. They are students, living in their cars, not having enough money to buy food because they have to pay tuition. But many are people who have just fallen on hard times and then can't afford a meal. So for just a little while, while I'm able to reach out, comfort those in need and hear their concerns and offer prayers for healing and encouragement. Proverbs has warned us, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Since my Jehovah Jireh, my provider is the Lord Jesus Christ, he has blessed me and given me opportunity to bless others. You see, Jesus has shown me You give them something to eat.
4: My name is Angela. In my life, as an advocate for children in the foster system, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. During Jesus' day, children were treated as second-class citizens, often discarded if they were not the right gender or struggled with a disability. Jesus challenged the idea that children should be shunned or shamed. Because of him, I have been inspired to do the same. Whenever I speak for a child at school, visit a home, find food or clothes for children in need, I am motivated by the idea that we are all created in the image of God and are all bearers of the divine image. We should treat everyone with grace and kindness. As a guardian at litem, I am able to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. As a caregiver in the foster system, every day I'm given the opportunity to look into little faces that carry the image of God and treat them with the love and respect of Christ.
5: My name is Joe. I'm a mental health counselor. I work with children, adolescents, and adults. I understand my work to be facilitating the healing that takes place through the sacrament of confession. Many people have loved ones they can confide in, but some don't or choose not to talk about various problems out of shame or fear of judgment. I believe we're only as sick as our secrets, and that as James says, as we confess to one another, we are healed confession hasn't been so popular with protestants and i dreaded it being raised catholic but there is something very powerful about sharing your life with someone who is full of love and compassion it mirrors what takes place during deep prayer many times i avoid god like adam did out of shame when my life isn't right in some way i feel like i must get it together before i can talk to god But the paradox is, I need God in order to get it together. We all do. We'll never be who we want to without his help. So we must have the humility to approach God, even though we may feel unworthy or disappointed in ourselves. What we will encounter is mercy and grace, not condemnation. Jesus is a wonderful counselor, full of grace and truth. And we don't need great health insurance to get an appointment. Just the faith and courage to come before Him just as we are.
0: Here's the truth, friends. There simply has been no transcendent vision of reality, no cosmic story to make sense of this earth that has gripped the human imagination, the battle of life and death, good and evil, love and hate, like the vision of this man, Jesus. And here's the point as it pertains to Easter. Let's imagine for a moment that you were around 2,000 years ago when this man Jesus came and you listened to him. You see, no one had ever taught like Jesus. He spoke in parables and he used object lessons and he challenged the religious norms of the day. He caused people to act like they had just put a little packet of those warhead candies in their mouth. In addition, no one had ever loved the way Jesus loved. He ate with sinners and he touched lepers and he forgave enemies and he embraced the downtrodden. So let's imagine that you wanted to become a follower of his and you left everything. You left your home, your family, your work. Everyone would tell you you were crazy, but you didn't care because you were convinced that this man got it, that his little community was really going to change the world. And for a while, at least a few years, it was an amazing adventure. And then one Sunday, you go into Jerusalem, and everybody there wanted to make him king. They were thrilled. But Jesus would have none of that. And because of that, things went south really fast. By Friday, this man that you had given up everything to follow was dead. Not just dead, but crucified like a common criminal on a cross. You were in deep despair. So on Sunday, you go to the tomb because, let's be honest, you really had nowhere else to go. And you get there, and it's very confusing. The tomb is empty, and the stone that had blocked it was rolled away. The Roman guards who were guarding it are gone, and there's just an angel there, a man, says, Jesus is not here. He is alive. So you run to tell everyone the good news. It'll probably be dangerous. Romans, maybe they will even kill you for it. But you know what? They killed Jesus and he's doing great. (laughs) And you tell everybody, hey, hate is out and love is in. And this crucified carpenter from Nazareth is now master of the universe. Here's my question. What do you think would be the first words out of your mouth? Robbie mentioned a tradition that's been around the church for a long time We said it together, Jesus Christ is risen. risen It's a great sentiment, but I don't think that was their first response. I don't think it was quite that polished. If I had to pick a word for Easter that kind of summarized what was going on in the hearts and minds of people like you who had decided to follow this kind of rabbi teacher named Jesus, I think it would be this word, wow. Wow. Wow is what we say when something happens that turns our world upside down. We didn't see it coming. We don't quite know how to take all of it in. Do you know wow is an expression of wonder and awe of being dumbstruck, uh, dumbstruck? and it's it's very interesting. Every language has a word for wow. But it doesn't really have a definition. Of all the words that we've looked at in this series leading up to today, it's the one word that doesn't really have a definition. In fact, if somebody doesn't say wow in a moment of shock, you know what other word they usually say? They'll usually say God or oh my God. Because in that moment, it's like our souls know that there's something or someone bigger than us. I want to talk about this for just a minute, about this Easter word, word, wow, because it has something powerful to teach us. You see, reality is filled with wows. Did you know that our universe was built on a wow? Somebody here was telling me that Oasis, um, they have um, a kid who's going to college, and they're getting a degree in physics. They said that they had to stop helping him when his a math homework when he was in the third grade. And they said he came home from school and he was talking to his parents about uh, what happened during what we've come to call the Big Bang. It's staggering to try to imagine that at one time, everything we know was contained in something called the singularity, smaller than the head of a pin, and then something happened. Now, Christians, we believe that that something was God, Right? And within the first second, listen, the first second of the Big Bang, the singularity had exploded into more than 100 million miles. Wow. And then along through history, we have these moments. Two guys named Orville and Wilbur get into a machine, and all of a sudden, human beings can fly. Several decades later, a man named Neil Armstrong takes his first step, and it's on the moon. I was five years old when it happened, and I still can remember some of my family members talking about that moment. Two years ago, the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. 118 years. Do you realize the last time they had won, not a single human being on this planet was alive? Friends, that was a wow moment for me. Go to the Great Wall of China. Hand a 16-year-old a driver's license. A boy meets a girl. A boy dates a girl. A boy realizes that he's outkicked his coverage by a thousand miles. So he proposes to that girl. And after they get married, he takes her on a honeymoon to New Jersey. And she says, wow. Wow. <laughs> That's not the good wow, by the way. Yeah. Every life has these wow moments. But let's think about Jesus' life, his death and resurrection. There's a passage in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to a little church. And when you read about it, it's so interesting. It makes some of the most staggering claims about the person of Jesus that I think has ever been made in one little group of sentences. One scholar, Jerry Hawthorne, says about this passage, It is as though Paul, so overcome with the majesty and the goodness of the one who brought hope to the hopeless and deliverance to the captive, considered prosaic sentences, totally inadequate, to do justice to this person. So his words poured forth in a carefully crafted poem that not only is a literary masterpiece, but the mountaintop mountaintop of Christological statements. Think about this. I don't know any other person in human history who has an entire academic field named for them as does Jesus Christ, the field of Christology. Think about it. There are so many unbelievable passages in the Word of God, but this one in Colossians 1, Paul is writing, and I'm just going to insert, instead of the word he, I'm going to insert the word Jesus because that's who he's talking about. Listen to this and be inspired. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, the firstborn over all creation, for in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together, and Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things Jesus might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. This is Paul's wow statement. It's actually a poem or a hymn. And it would not be the last time that a human being would be so inspired by this person, Jesus, that they would feel the need for some kind of artistic vehicle or expression to kind of let it out. As we celebrate on this day the one man who changed the course of mankind, I want us to quickly walk through Paul's language here to understand the enormity of his work. The enormity of his message, his life, his death, and his resurrection that has gripped the imagination of the human race like no story in human history. First of all, Paul says this Jesus is our icon. I think Something kind of interesting happened. Do you guys remember the TV show, Lois uh, and um, Clark and Lois, the one about Superman, where he never really became Superman, he was just a reporter? And there was a guy on that, a really good looking guy, who, who was kind of starred in that. Somebody can help me out with his name right now because it's Dean Kane, exactly. I saw Dean Kane last week on an infomercial and it said, TV personality and icon. Dean Kane is an icon. Think about this. A word about this word icon. Icon is the literal Greek word that Paul uses, and it's translated the image of God. He says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The biggest question in human existence has always been listen, does God exist? Is there really a God? And if there is a God, what is he like? There's this kind of goofy story floating around. Kids are drawing in school, they're in school and they're drawing, and a teacher says to a little girl, What in the world are you drawing? And the girl says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher says, listen, nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl says, after I'm done, they will. (laughs) See, one of the things that the nation of Israel gave us is the truth that God is spirit. He's not an idol. He's not a statue. He's not some graven image. He can't be reduced to a physical presence. And that's really, really important. But sometimes when you think about that, it kind of leaves you feeling a little empty because it's kind of like this invisible God is distant. He's just kind of hard to know. And Paul says, listen, Jesus is the image of this invisible God. You hear the Bible say stuff like no one has ever seen God. Any devout Jewish person would know and agree with that statement. No one has ever seen God, but, and this is huge, God, the only son Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made God known. Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, friends, that's staggering when you think about it. This Jesus, his iconic status, is not in doubt. He inspired the human race like nobody. Walking along one day, he sees guys, James and John, fishing. He sees two other guys, Andrew and Peter, fishing. He says, follow me. He says, I'll make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets and they leave their homes and leave their mom and dad, leave everything. Leave their security, their occupation, their identity. And 2,000 years ago, or or now, after 2,000 years, he still makes this invitation. And part of what I want to say to you on this Easter Sunday morning is this. What Jesus says to you is not come and get your life straightened out. Not come and just be a better person. He says, come and follow me. And I'm going to take your life and incorporate it into my Father's kingdom. And I'm going to help you live a different way. A way that's not built on stacking up security or money or any of that. But a way that you'll have significance in your life. This inspired people so deeply. It's the reason that Jesus became the most followed, admired, most sung about, most painted, most sculpted, most recognizable figure in human history. It's why a composer, that Johann Sebastian Bach, a guy who had a very difficult life, he lost his wife and three of his children when they were still young. It's why Bach became so devoted to God, he would write three little letters on every piece of music that he wrote, S D G. And they stand for Sola Deo Gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. He wrote one piece, Joy of Man's Desire. He said, Holy wisdom, love most bright, drawn by thee, our souls aspiring, soar to uncreated light. And people have listened to his music and been inspired for centuries. See, here's the deal. If you want to live a God-moved, God-breathed, God-inspired life, here's a question. Who should you get to know? This is going to be real simple. From now until the end of this message, this message is going to be about one thing. You know how sometimes you listen to sermons if you come to church? And somebody asks you, what was that sermon about? And you look over and you say, you know, I'm going to be honest, I don't really know. You ever had that happen? Don't raise your hands, friends, okay? <laughs> I've had it happen, and I preached the sermon. Okay? Today, however, I'm gonna make no guarantees about quality, but I'm gonna tell you from now to the end of this message, I'm gonna tell you what this sermon's gonna be about. You ready? This whole thing is gonna be about Jesus. So, periodically in the next five or ten minutes, if I ask you a question, I'm gonna give you a little tip. The answer is always going to be very good. No risk at all to be wrong. So, if you wanna live a God powered, God, in, God breathed, God moved, God inspired life. Who should you get to know? Why? Because he is the icon. He is the image. He is how we know what God is like. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul says, this is wild, Jesus is our creator. Some people don't know this about Jesus. He's not just a baby born in a manger. He is the agent of creation. Paul gets a little fancy here with his writing, and he does something uh, kind of rhetorical. He's kind of celebrating this, and let me tell you the way he does it. Back in that day, they didn't have parentheses like we do in the English language. They didn't have grammatical punctuation marks. So in Paul's day, if they had like a key idea that they wanted to stress, one of the things they would sometimes do is they would use a phrase, and they would bracket it so it was kind of like verbal parentheses, so in verse 16, watch this. He says, by him all things are created. That's one bracket. But then he says, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or realities, all things were created by him. See, it's the same phrase because he wants people to get it. He's like going over this, over and over in this passage. Another flourish is it's kind of like the Greek letter, uh, uh, Kai, it's, it's like our version of the word or the letter X. He says, and it's a pattern here. Paul says it's kind of like A, B, B, A. And they, he presents two ideals and then he kind of like reverses the order of them. For example, what he says is through Jesus, all things good, things in heaven or on earth, visible, there he goes again, that's earth, and invisible, that's heaven. And what he's doing, he's not just showing off here. He wants to do this for a reason. He says, listen, you live in a world where you're often afraid of powers and rulers and who's in charge and who's in government and who's the president and who's not the president and forces beyond our own little control. What he says is, listen, Jesus has the whole world in his hands. Remember that old song? Some of you grew up with that back in the 60s, 70s. You and me, sister. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. What he's saying is you don't have to be afraid. He is the author of creation. Jesus is able to make sense of why creation moves some of you so much. Why you feel so close to God when you're in creation. Why? Because he made it for us and he made us for it. And he loves it. Paul was saying, if you like creation, listen, if it ever moves you, if it ever touches you, if it ever stirs your soul, he says, wait until you know the creator. What is great about creation is it's just a little tiny expression of the one who made it. Joseph Haydn wrote a piece called Creation. Haydn would would, uh, normally begin all of his music with the phrase, in the name of the Lord. And if he ever got stuck sometimes, like during the creative process... He would write on his paper, he would write the words, help me, Lord. They actually have sheets of music where he's written, help me, Lord, on the side. Maybe the single note image of the human being, the best known, was created and put on the Sistine Chapel by a guy named Michelangelo. The creator God is just about to endow Adam with life. Friends, that's Jesus. All things, including you, are created by and through him. Then Jesus does something interesting. Paul says that Jesus is also our sustainer. He is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. Now try to get your mind around this for a second. It's not just that he made everything and then just let it go. The only reason that creation keeps on existing is it is being sustained and held together by Jesus. Part of what that means is if you're trying to hold your life together, you're in trouble. You ever talk this way sometimes? Sometimes I've heard people say, My life is coming apart at the seams. Friends, you cannot integrate yourself. We were made to depend on. Upon a sustainer. He is holding you together, friends, whether you know it or not. This is why he would tell stories all the time about, listen, pray and depend on me and lean on me and trust me and don't give up and don't give in. An artist, artist named Albert Durer, he sketched a pair of hands, praying hands. They became so famous And Durer was the artist, was actually known and kind of spiritually shaped by a guy named Martin Luther. There's a story behind this sketch. Nobody knows for sure the whole details of it, but it expresses something very, very deep here. Durer was from a large, poor family. He was the third of 18 children. Very gifted. And the story goes that a friend of his, some people think it might have been even a brother. They both loved art so much But the brother or the friend agreed to work in the mines for a while to support Durer so he could go to school and learn how to draw. And the deal was that when Durer was through, he would trade places with the other guy and then they would be able to go to school. After several years, Durer made enough money for his friend to work as an artist. But when he returned home with the news that he was done and he had all the money, his friend's hands had been so damaged in the mine. That he was unable to even hold a paintbrush or work as an artist. And Durer, who was so moved by this, who had seen these hands clasped in prayer for him so many times, he wanted to capture the beauty of hands at prayer. Look at this. You can't look at this picture without thinking of the hands that have been clasped to pray for you a friend, a mother, a dad, a spouse a pastor, a life group member, a brother, a sister. How many times in this world today on Easter Sunday can you reflect back and think about the grace of God being poured out in your life in some ways that you'll never understand because somebody all by themselves was doing this? Praying for God to sustain you, to hold you, to lift you up. The was inspired by this man, Jesus. Then Paul says, and this is interesting, Jesus is our authority. Paul says he's the head of the church, head of the body, called the church. Now this is kind of an interesting switch in the text. You notice up to now he's been talking about creation, how creation is so amazing. He made it, he sustains it. But now he has a new creation and this is the church. This is a strange little community that got birthed out of his movement. You know, for years and years, centuries in fact, the church had no buildings at all. They'd meet anywhere they could. They'd meet in the catacombs in Rome. This is a picture of a sarcophagus from the 300s. And the figure at the top is Jesus with a scroll, a scroll of wisdom and blessing. And then that figure underneath his feet, if you see It's called the personification of the cosmos. It's picturing that all power has been placed under the subjection of this man, Jesus. Now think about this. Christianity went from not existing to existing in one fell swoop. His movement against all odds spread. It spread to the point that people became so inspired that they would create these giant cathedrals. And the reason that they would create these massive structures is that they wanted people to lift their vision up because there was something about looking up that was so transcendent that inspired the human spirit. They wouldn't just meet there, though. They would meet in places like huts in Africa and underground churches and basements in China. They'd meet in storefront churches in all parts of the world. They would meet in places like the Lakeland Center. Do you ever wonder why after 2,000 years the church exists? I'm going to give you a clue here. It has nothing to do with the church being well organized. I meet people sometimes at Easter Sunday morning service. And they'll say, you know, I like Jesus, but I am not into organized religion. I tell them, listen... You need to come back and try our church because we are really a disorganized church. (laughs) We are in to disorganized religion. The church has not lasted 2,000 years because it has a really cool organizational chart. The most important thing about a church is not the building. I'll give you a clue. The important thing about the church is not even the people The most important thing about the church, here's your guess. What is it? Jesus. He is the head. It's not you, it's not me, it's not the staff, it's not the elders. The head of the church is Jesus. And there is nothing like the church, and there never has been. This was true yesterday, and this is true today, and this will be true forever. And eventually, someone someone is going to come back and fix up this broken, dark, messed up world, including the church. Who's coming back? Jesus is also our reconciler. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. This is one of the things about God that I think is so mysterious. God loves to create spaces as far back as I can remember You go back to the story of Genesis, and he creates space, and then he fills them. He makes the seas, and then he fills them with creatures. He makes the skies, and he fills them with creatures. He makes the earth, and then he fills it with people. The fullness of God is such a huge theme. And Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, to reconcile himself to himself all things. I'll give you some info. You can take it, leave it, whatever. This world's hope for reconciliation is Jesus. Leo Tolstoy was so moved by this thought about the human race, he wrote a book called War and Peace. It's maybe the most famous book about war in the history of the human race. And in it, this is what he says, Men need only trust in Christ's teaching and obey it, and there will be peace on earth. That is how you make peace on earth. Now, I understand because of sin, because of rebellion, because of dark hearts, we can't do that. But Jesus is a man of peace. Let me tell you why we need this. Back in England, um, there's a part of England called the Cotswolds. The Cotswolds. And they used to have in this area what they called the Cotswolds Olympics. It was like in the 1600s, 1700s. And they had all these crazy Olympic activities. Running, wrestling. But some of them were really odd. One of them was called cudgels. One of them was called skills. And one of them, and I'm not making this up, was called shin kicking. They had a contest called shin kicking. Tournaments. Two people would grab each other by the collar... And they would kick each other's shins until somebody fell down. Is there any better image in the world than the human race in that picture right there? We are shin kickers. That's what we do. And Paul says, listen, in this pathetic little world of you hurt me and I'll hurt you back. You kick me and I'll kick you back. Listen, someone has come and torn down the dividing wall. And said, look, no more Jew-Greek, no more slave-free, no more male-female, no more rich, poor, black, white. Paul says, he himself is our peace. And people get moved to their core by this. A guy by the name of Victor Hugo got so moved by it that he wrote a book called Les Miserables. It has been adapted into a play, a movie, a musical. Many of you have seen it ten times over. And there's a scene where Jean Valjean, a convict, he's a desperate poor man. He's shown kindness by a priest. But he's so desperate that one day he sneaks away and he takes some of the priest's silverware from the table. But the police catch him and they bring him back to the priest. And you're just waiting in the movie, in the scene, in the book where the hammer's going to come down. And instead the priest says, oh no, 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 you've misunderstood These are my gifts to Jean Valjean. You must let him go, officer. In fact, he has forgotten my best gift. And he regives him then the silver candlesticks that are worth more than anything else. And privately he says to Jean Valjean, But now you must always remember, my son, I have bought your soul for God. So you must, listen, live a new life now for him. And there's a fabulous statement at the very end. To love another person is to see the face of God. How do we know God is love? Because this peacemaker, Jesus, came and said, I am here to reconcile the world. And then Paul says, Jesus is our sin sacrifice. He has made peace through his shed blood on the cross. Friends, there is one image, there is one symbol, there is one shape that adorns more artwork, more graves, more than any other figure or image on this earth. It is the person Jesus on a cross. The oldest known poem in the English language was called A Dream of the Rood." It goes back to the 17th century. Rude is the word for rod or for tree. And the poem is a vision of the cross. And part of what it says in this poem is I saw the God of hosts harshly stretched out. All creation wept. Kings fall, lamented. Christ was on rood. May he be friend to me who here on earth died on that gallows tree for mankind's sin. Centuries later, a guy named John Bunyan, who his life by himself was inspired because of his imprisonment. He wrote, I saw a man with his face turned away from his own house, a book in his hand, a burden on his back. That is the first sentence of a book called Pilgrim's Progress. And the man was named Pilgrim, and the book is the Bible. And the burden that he carries is sin. John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, some consider the greatest poem in the English language. And in that poem, Satan expresses the desire of sin this way. He says, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. That really describes our world sometimes, doesn't it? I would rather reign without God than submit and yield and serve under him. And then Jesus comes and he is this willing sacrifice. Now here's a personal question for you. We talked a lot about Jesus this morning. And my question is this. Do you really know him? Listen, I'm not talking about do you find him inspirational? Do you find him viable? Do you find him historic? Do you really know him? And today we end with this. Paul says, Jesus is our death defeater. I want to tell you, death, it's the worst. But Paul says Jesus is the beginning and firstborn from the dead, so that in everything, Jesus might have supremacy. One of the great works of Western literature and education is something called the Heidelberg Catechism. It starts with a question, so I want to read this question, and then I'd like, if you would, to answer it out loud with the words underneath. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And you say, I belong body and soul, in, life and in death, to
3: my Savior, Jesus
0: Christ. Some of you should uh, memorize those words. I am not my own, which is a very countercultural thing to say these days. But I belong body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior. And Jesus did this at the cost of his own life and his own death. And it has staggered the human imagination now for centuries. An artist named Hans Holbein. He did a painting of Christ after the crucifixion. He wanted to show the ugliness of death and the price that Jesus was willing to pay, so he he painted this. And centuries later, another writer by the name of Dostoevsky stared at this painting, this painting for days. It moved Dostoevsky so deeply that God would somehow die for the forgiveness of our sins, that he was inspired to write one of his books. It's called The Idiot. What he writes in this, he says, Looking at that picture, death has senselessly seized, cut to pieces, and swallowed up impassively and unfeelingly a grave and priceless being, a being worth the whole of nature and all its laws, worth the entire earth, which was perhaps created solely for the coming of that being, Jesus. Dante wrote in the Divine Comedy that above the doors of hell is written a single statement. Abandon hope, all you who enter here. I Always thought they should put that above the doors to a super Walmart myself. <laughs> <laughs> But here's the deal. Easter, my friends, is the birthplace of hope. Because Easter is really a life and death and life story. One day, regardless of what people may feel or think, a group of people put all their hope in a rabbi named Jesus. And he was filled with this unshakable confidence in his father that was so solid, so solid they were convinced they could put their lives and their futures in his hands. And when that happened, the strangest thing took place. A group of mostly forgotten people began to hope. They hoped again. Lepers hoped they would be cleansed and prostitutes hoped they could be pure and crooked tax collectors who were despised started to hope that they could be honest And blind people started to see. And lame people started to hope that they could walk. And sinners started to hope that they could be right with God. And lonely people started to hope that they could be loved. There was something about this man, Jesus, that made people hope who hadn't hoped for anything in a long time. And he was filled with this unshakable confidence in his father. He was so clear, and he could not be deterred, at least they thought, until finally he was arrested, mocked, tried, hung on a cross to die. And every single person who followed him that day, listen friends, when he died, their hope died with him. And they thought it was the end of life. And their minds the best was not yet to come. That is until the sun came up. On Sunday morning the sun came up and that same group of small followers, that little band, came to the empty tomb and they proclaimed, Wow! Christ is risen! He is risen indeed. If you're still wondering today who this man is, let me be clear. He defeated death for every child of God that has ever been backed into a corner Who has ever felt the sting of disappointment? Who has ever experienced the depths of despair, the tragedy of loss, and the agony of defeat? When all hope was gone, on that third day, he rose again, and the tomb could not hold him, and the grave could not contain him. And my only question is this, is he your only hope in life and in death? Is he your only hope? Lord Jesus, uh, we kind of seal this time together on this Easter morning and want to say thanks again for the great gift, the gift of life and the gift of hope, the gift of reconciliation, the gift of peace, the gift of creation, the gift of you to this world. Will you seal in our hearts today just who you are and who you want to be? Long after we leave this building, may your words, may the image of you resonate in our heart and mind as we celebrate this Easter season. Amen. I want to invite you back to Oasis Beyond Easter. Next uh, Sunday, we're going to do something that we've probably never done before, and that's we're going to have the greatest sermon in the history of mankind. And it's not going to be given by me or Robbie or anybody else. We're actually going to begin a series called Risen Indeed. You notice a little space in between. Indeed. Jesus said, here's how life is supposed to look if you live in my kingdom. And he stood one day and gave what many say is the greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to begin a series looking at that very practically over the next several weeks beginning next Sunday. I hope you'll be here. Today, i leave you with this. If you're wondering about who this man really is, he is the maker of this universe. He is the sustainer of existence. He is the ruler over every power, no matter how big it looks to us. He is the image of God. He is our icon. He is the fullness of God and the wisdom of God. He is the presence of God. He's a sin conqueror. He's the guilt obliterator, the final sacrifice, the cross-bearer, the death-defeater, the tomb-breaker, the peacemaker. He is now head over his body, the church. He is a reconciler of all things. He is the maker, redeemer, savior, forgiver, Lord, friend, guide, shepherd, and hope for every human being. And by now you know that his name is Jesus. He is risen Wow. We'll see you outside.